Hey, brother, there's an endless road to rediscover. Hey, sister, know the water's sweet, but blood is thicker. Oh, the sky. Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother? I'm going to have a brother? I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So, Tony, this week... I'm sitting at work, and as I mentioned before, I work for a financial organization. I'm leading this big conference call, and the conference call is with some consultants who've been doing some work for us, and our senior management team, there's a bunch of people on the phone who are super important, super brilliant, there's a bunch of people in the room of the same caliber, and we're going over this process or philosophy for how to do some complicated math, which I do love some complicated math. So we're talking about this, we're going back and forth. It's not just about the arithmetic, but trying to figure out if this approach is the right way to go, because we're going to basically use this philosophy to do all this kind of valuation for what the company is actually worth. So it all starts with this concept called the the OIS swap curve or the overnight index swap curve. So if you're a financial nerd, you would know what that is, but all it is is just a way of understanding interest rates. So this consultant goes in this long diatribe about how important this is, how it's best practice, how it's something that the institution should be implementing. And I'm thinking about it and processing the information and he gets the end of his speech. It's quiet on our end. And because I'm leading it, I say, or what I want to say is I, I hear what you're saying. That makes complete sense. And I agree with that philosophically. Let's do it. What I say instead, for whatever reason, is I agree with that theologically. Let's go ahead and do that. That is awesome. And It actually, I I don't know if you've had this happen to you before, but it was one of those instances where it came out of my mouth. I finished the sentence, like, let's do it. And then instantly my brain was thinking, did you just say theologically? Like it took me a second to even realize. And meanwhile, in the room and on the phone, it's just crickets. Nobody's talking. That's funny. So all I could do was just say, and also agree with that philosophically. And yet surprisingly, (laughs) nobody asked me later on. That's like, great. What was up with that? The, the you know, next time actually, you start it, go ahead. What, what was really strange about this was maybe you've had this happen to you too. Is when I said theologically and then realized in my mind I'd made the error. All of these thoughts are processing like super fast. So within the span of like five seconds, I was actually thinking, wait, do I agree with this theologically? Like, is there something about these rates that I should really bring before <laughs> the Lord to kind of get a better understanding? And do I have a strong conviction about this one way or the other? So, so it was crazy. Anyway, what were you going to say? I was going to say the next time you start a big conference call, you should be like, hey, brother. <laughs> I'm totally going to do that. Hey, brother. What would be great is if they listened to the podcast and they were just like, hey, brother. That would be really funny. <laughs> I would love that. I've had this problem before, though, with my brain processing in different ways. Like, So clearly, I've been doing a lot of... I guess, theological thinking to some extent. And it's just totally spilled over in a natural way into my work in finance, both of which I love. But I have this problem or tend to have this problem when I give blood. Have you ever given blood before? I have not, no. So when you give blood, they ask you all these kind of qualifying questions to basically vet you before they actually take the blood. And some of them have really strange and specific details. So rather than just saying, for instance, have you ever been to Africa or to Asia? They'll say something like, have you ever been to Africa before 1980 or live with somebody who is from Africa between 1995 and 2006? And so for most people, the answer to that question is like an unequivocal no. And (laughs) that's true for me. But what happens instead is I get caught up on the details. So I, I pause at like two seconds to think like, man, I wonder what happened before 1980. That's the cutoff. <laughs> and so the person generally starts looking at you. So you'll finally say like, yes, yes. I mean, no, no. <laughs> and uh, they look at you with like great suspicion because they're like, it took you way too long to answer what should have been a simple question. That's, have you ever had that happen? 
I have actually. So I, I've never given blood, but when I was in college, I um, have to phrase this carefully. I donated plasma and was given money in return for my time. You can't say that you sold plasma, but I sold I sold blood plasma. And um, one of the questions they ask you is, have you ever been incarcerated or have you been incarcerated in the last 72 hours? And it's funny because you could go twice a week and you had to have one day in the middle. So if you answer yes to that question <laughs> and you were there two days earlier, well, what's going to happen? And That's I used to always, and it's funny because you can't make jokes. Like you can't joke because exactly. they, they record everything. And if you make a joke at the wrong time, they're going to like send you out of there or you could like not be able to do it again. So it's funny because they're, you know, they're so specific and it's like, have you, have you ever, um, have you ever known a person who's been incarcerated for more than 72 hours, but less than 65 hours and just weird, ultra specific questions? Exactly. It's all those details which trip me up. And you're right, because I like to try to make it interesting for especially in the service industry. If somebody's helping me out, like I want to be not just a delight, but I want to give them kind of a story to tell. So I'm always trying to be funny, yeah. which is usually to my detriment. And in that situation, it always is because they're definitely not there to have a good time. And you can't joke around about the questions because they'll just yeah. be like, sir, is that yes or no? I'll be like, oh, yeah, that, definitely no. My favorite question they used to ask was, are you feeling well and healthy today? I was like, that's an interesting way to phrase that. That is a very interesting way to phrase yeah. that. And then I they ask you should... specific questions like, do you have a fever? Do you have any uh, do you have any open sores? They ask you like, right. Really specific questions that you would think would have been covered under the broad. Are you feeling well and healthy today? One time when I gave blood, they asked about medication and I, it was like, I was taking something for like bronchitis or some strange, I forget what it was exactly. Some kind of uh, antibacterial thing, antibiotic. And I couldn't remember the name and it just got really suspicious and awkward in that tiny room. Like it was on a bus. It was on a blood bus. <laughs> yeah. So it was just me and like a woman in a closet and me saying things like, ah, it's like a it's pink. I think there's like a B on the pill. Like, and all I can, all I can imagine is she's writing down, this guy does cocaine. We're going to yeah, pass, seriously. you know, like something like that. Yeah. I, um, when I do, used to do blood plasma, I have like really big, like healthy veins. Like you could throw a dart from across the room and hit it and be just fine. So they would always bring a great they, you image. Know, be, being a phlebotomist, which is the people that draw blood, it doesn't require, this may be totally shocking to people. It doesn't require any specific medical training. So they could hire a person who has no medical background and teach them to do the blood draw in center at the donor place. So they would bring all the new people out because I'm a really easy stick. And I remember one time there was this girl that probably was younger than I was. I was I was probably like in my 20s because I was in college and she came over and she went to go put the needle in and she was like her hand was like shaking as she was getting close to my arm. And I actually reached over and grabbed her wrist and was like, you need to get this together or you need to go get somebody else. Cause it was, she was that shaky when she was trying to do it. It was pretty bad. Yeah. That's super unnerving. We're going to do a podcast. I think where we just ask each other the questions that you get asked when you give blood. Cause if you haven't done it, it is a little bit intimidating the first time that yeah. they just rattle them off and it's all the details that will trip you up. Yeah. That that'll be next year's April fool's day episode. I love it. So all yeah. that to say, I'm going to use in my meetings, my financial meetings, I'm just going to start saying that I agree with things theologically as the reason for why I think we should implement different ideas and see yeah, how that goes. Definitely. Yeah. I don't think anybody's going to challenge me. Um, so again, if you have enjoyed as a listener, this whole conversation that we've covered in terms of finance, OAS swap curves, giving blood, giving plasma, but not for money then probably what you should do is give us a call. Uh, is it possible actually for us, for people to call us, Tony? It is. The phone number is 607-444-BROS. <laughs> I've been practicing can, that. Can we hear that one more time? Because it sounded like that was for auto glass repair. Yes. 607-444-2767. That number is 607-444-2767. So give us a call. Leave us a message about either what we're talking about or something we're not talking about that should or... If you just want to whisper sweet nothings in our ear, this is your chance to do that. Yeah, I'm probably going to just delete messages that are whispering sweet nothings in our ear, though. <laughs> I thought we were going to have a sweet, sweet nothings episode. Yeah, that would be uh, disturbing, to say the least, I think. Yeah, you're probably right. It probably would be far more awkward than I pictured it in my head. Yeah, I'm going to forward those straight to your cell phone, though, if I get them. Oh, perfect. I love that. So yeah. speaking of talking and leaving us messages and speaking with one another... 
Here's something that I wanted to talk about with you, Tony, that has been on my mind a lot recently from a practical perspective. And it's trying to understand how we can best prepare for corporate worship on the Lord's Day. And there's that kind of opens up a broad spectrum of topics, which we'll come back to at various points, I think, on this cast. But I wanted to spend some time specifically focused on how do we prepare for being in God's house and the worship service that normally is kind of a part of most of our Christian routines. Does that make sense? It does. It absolutely does. And I think it's a great topic because I think so often we um, we just kind of stumble into Sunday morning, right? Um, Saturday is, sure. is what Saturday is, and it, it's usually a pretty crazy, hectic day. And then all of a sudden we wake up on Sunday morning and it's like, oh yeah, I have church today. I forgot about that. Right. Exactly. And so this is separate and distinct from my conversations about Sabbath, which I think we're going to come back to at another time, right? Yeah. Yeah. We'll definitely come back to the Sabbath conversation. Um, the guys over at the reform Pubcast have had a lot of conversations on Sabbath, um, and they've been really good conversations. So you should check those out. I'll try to try to look up a couple, um, choice episodes and, uh, put the links in the show notes, but, um, yeah, we want to keep that as a separate discussion from this. Cause this, this, if I understand it is more along the lines of, you know, what do we do on Saturday or Friday or even starting on Monday, gasp, right on. what do we do to start preparing gasp. for worship when we get, you know, when we're coming into Sunday morning? Spoiler alert, you must prepare all week long. Yes, your life is a life of preparation. That's really good. That's like a bumper sticker waiting to happen. It is. Yeah, I'm going to get that tattooed on my forehead backwards. So I, when I see it in the mirror, it's always there. I can't think of anything that would go wrong with that. So <laughs> what I what we've already kind of done implicitly is to make the assumption that corporate worship is something that is separate and distinct. We're talking about a specific event, a specific period of time. So I thought it'd be best to kind of get some con- context first. And what I want to ask you was, what does, especially like the New Testament, what is the mandate for corporate worship, whether by prescription or description? What, what should corporate worship look like? Or what are like the essential elements of corporate worship to kind of frame how we can prepare for that thing. Sure. So um, we'll go back a little bit before the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, obviously, um, there was a special day set aside, and it was the uh, seventh day of the week, which is our Saturday, was set aside um, for corporate worship and rest. Um, and that's in the commandments. It was it was a real central piece of the um, the Jewish uh, liturgical celebration was to have that that day set aside to not do any work, to rest, to spend time with family, to focus themselves on worship. Um, so much so that to fail to do that, uh, garner the death penalty. So as we progress into the New Testament, um, the question that has to be asked is: Did the early Christians carry on Seventh Day Sabbath worship, or did they did they progress to First Day Lord's Day? worship. Um, and right. what we, what we seem to see, and it's kind of an implicit thing is that the, the worship on the Sabbath, and there's a really kind of long discussion about how worship on the Sabbath, the seventh day transition to being Lord's day worship and why. And that's another conversation that we'll get to probably when we get to the ecclesiology section of our systematic stuff. Um, but the, what we see happening is that Saturday worship transitions into a celebration of the Lord's resurrection. And so on the, the resurrection celebration takes place on the day of the week that the resurrection happened. So we know that the Lord was raised on a Sunday um, he appeared to his disciples that first Sunday. He gave the first sermon, um, you know, to the to the disciples on the road to Emmaus on Sunday. So the early church um, transitioned their worship to Sunday. And by the time we get to the writing of um, the book of Revelation, we see uh, the the phrase, um, "I was I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day." So this Lord's day um, is is becoming a technical term a specific phrase that points to the day that Christians gather and worship as early as, you know, some might say as early as 70 or 75 AD, um, right or on. if you date revelation a little bit later, as early as 90 AD. And it's used in such a way that it's assumed that his readers would understand it. So we know that the the beginning of that use was probably, um, probably 20 to 30 years earlier is when it started being referenced as the Lord's day. Right on. I like that you started with, going back to the Old Testament, because it does have its roots there. So being that it starts there, we have this sensibility that the Lord's Day is an actual thing. It's recognized in the New Testament. What would you say are like some of the elements that are essential to a corporate worship experience on that day? Sure. So we already talked a little bit about what it is that makes up the church. And so one of those things was 
um, what you might call duly or lawfully ordained elders. And what that means, basically, different traditions, again, a topic we'll get to when we get to ecclesiology, but different traditions have different ways of understanding how elders are ordained. So Presbyterian traditions would say that um, people who are ordained ordain other people. So it's it's elders who are already ordained who make the decision to ordain other other elders. In um, Baptist denominations or congregational denominations, uh, many times it's the local congregation that ordains. So a local church would say that they're ordaining this pastor to ministry in this church or in this congregation. And there's kind of a spectrum that exists between that where you might have um, kind of a coalition of local churches that isn't quite a presbytery, but is is not exactly like a local singular congregation. So I'd say gathering together under the teaching of an ordained or a duly ordained elder um, who is uh, expositing and teaching the scriptures. Right. Um, and then also um, maybe not every week, some, you know, Calvin said every week would be ideal, but maybe not every week, but somewhere along the line, the sacrament of communion or the ordinance of communion, if you're from a more um, memorialist perspective, is also celebrated. So those those elements of um, of corporate worship would consist of the preaching of the word by an ordained elder. Um, the, the celebration of the sacraments um, and then also corporate or public prayer and corporate um, usually sung worship of some sort. Yeah, right on. And I think that for the most part, across a broad spe- spectrum of Christian theology, we would agree with those essentials, right? I mean, those right. would be the things that we would say they might have different expression, but they're all rooted in those same elements. Yeah. And that's basically where I've been starting and where, where the Lord has kind of been leading me in participation when worship and understanding what is happening during that time is moving from the Old Testament where we see from there all the elements of worship are drawn into Jesus. So now he's the temple, he's the priest, he's the Passover lamb, he's the bread of life. Right. And for me, what's interesting is this is transmuting all these Old Testament patterns of worship and it takes the worship language and moves it, moves the locus away from a place or time to all of life. So I think we would say, maybe we wouldn't say it exactly like this, but I think we'd all agree, or maybe we wouldn't agree, we'll have to see, that uh, we cannot imagine that like the church gathers for worship on the Lord's Day, if by that we mean that we then engage in something that we have not been doing the rest of the week. So new covenant worship terminology prescribes like a constant sense of worship. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think... um I think I would probably disagree with you a little bit in saying that um, the Lord's Day is a day that is set off and is separate. Um, it's a day that is not exactly the same as the others. And um, we right. you know, we can get into it in a little while about why I think that is. But I think you're right, though, is that what's happening on the Lord's Day should not be isolated from what's happening the rest of the week. Exactly. It's not exactly. as though yeah. we're Christians on Sunday and every other day of the week is kind of ours to do secular things. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm still a firm believer by the conviction of the full counsel of God that the Lord's day is separate and distinct. Right. It's what I'm wrestling through is like this nuance of this idea that under the terms of the new covenant worship is going on all the time. So, and that includes when the people have got together, but here's the piece where I thought we might actually have some interesting kind of different nuances in our interpretation. I'm kind of growing to appreciate that while the worship happens all the time, mutual edification is not going all the time. And that's what takes place when Christians gather together. So it's, it's distinctive of corporate worship. So while his worship is happening on, in an ongoing sense, there is something special about gathering together for worship. But part of that speciality, if you will, is the edification process. I mean, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think obviously Christians should be building each other up um, all the time in every possible circumstance. But there, I think there is a unique, special way that Christians do that on the Lord's Day. We gather and I think we're united to each other in a special way when we gather for corporate worship that we are not necessarily united other times. There's a singularity of purpose and a singularity of intention um, that is present when we're gathered that isn't usually that way, right? So when I come on Sunday morning, um, I know what we're going to be doing. I know when we're going to be doing it roughly. And I know that everybody's going to be doing it at the same time. We're going to stand up at the same time. We're going to bow our heads and pray at the same time. We're going to sing songs at the same time. We're going to sit and listen to the sermon and be moved, you know, be touched by the Holy Spirit um, in the sermon at the same time. But then after that, we go back to our homes and I may go have lunch first 
Um, but someone else may walk the dog and then I walk the dog after lunch and they, you know, they come home and do their lunch. So our, our lives take different shape and structure for the rest of the week. But on Sunday morning in a very specific way, in a special way, our lives all take the same shape and the same pattern. Yeah. That's a good way of saying it. I like that because this, what I'm not necessarily saying is of course, is that there can't be a type of edification by some definition, when Christians get together and play basketball or board games, like right. certainly there's a fellowship and fellowship, I guess, is uniquely Christian by definition, but edification, like this building up, this insightfulness that comes like that, that is something very specific and should define the corporate worship experience. And worship is also part of that. Of course, worshiping God, setting aside the day, the Lord's day to do that. Uh, but it almost seems like the New Testament, the New Covenant is drawing like a more clear distinction because it's changing, like I said, like the locus of the language. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah. And I think, um, I think one of the main parts of that is that our worship is still kind of typological in a way. So yes. we, we talk about, um, types and anti-types and a type is, um, is something that points forward to or refers to something else. So the Passover lamb uh, in Exodus is a type of Christ and Christ is the fulfillment. And we could say the same thing about the Sabbath is a type of Christ and Christ fulfills the Sabbath. And so I think in, in a lot of ways, our New Testament worship is still only pointing towards what worship will be like in the new heaven and the new earth. Um, and so for me, that actually, maybe we will get into a little bit, that explains why we shift our worship um, from Saturday to Sunday, right? Is in the old covenant, before Christ had come, the shadows of the New Test of the, the Sabbath were pointing towards Christ's coming and his fulfillment of the law and his obtaining the permanent Sabbath rest for us. So it was pointing towards that in an anticipatory fashion. So it, it was the seventh day of the week um, pointing towards God's rest, but also sort of knowing that the first day of the week would be the resurrection, that happening on the seventh day sort of builds in that anticipation. Well, yes. when, now that the fullness of Christ has come, we now celebrate the fullness on the day that it happened. But it's still a type, it's still a typological worship because it's not, it's not the fullness of the eschatological worship. Does that make exactly. sense? You, yes, you just stole the word because I was going to say this does have like eschatological, eschatological consequences, right. right? That there is something about that that we're able to glean very clearly from something seemingly as simple as the day on the week in which we choose to right. hold a corporate worship service. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it, it's tremendously important. Yeah, so I, so I think what's instructive for me is when I was trying and as I continue to try to figure out what does it mean to prepare well and to prepare rightly – I was trying to first discern, well, what am I preparing for? Yeah. What are like the key functions of this time together? And it's it's both worship, but in another sense, it's also, or in a magnified sense almost, it's this sense of mutual edification with each other. I like what you said about kind of having the same shape of life for a small period of time. Yeah. And we are, by distinction, saying what happens on the Lord's Day morning or evening is a time that is sacrosanct in some way it is completely different it is purposefully separate and that's very different than again christians just getting together and, and playing video games so there's not, nothing wrong with but that's not mutual edification it's not that's not happening in the same way uh, even though worship is not happening in a corporate sense worship there is like should be a, a line drawn through our lives now where worship becomes like a constant activity reaction yeah and i think maybe a helpful way to look at it is what we do on a Sunday morning in worship um, or a Sunday afternoon, the, the time of day is not so uh, rigid to me. But what we do on Sunday in our corporate act of worship is a distinctly Christian act. Um, yes, you know, a group of Christians getting together to play paintball, for example, um, should look a little bit different than a group of non-Christians getting together. But that's that's not because there's a Christian way to play paintball and a non-Christian way to play paintball. It's because Christians live should be living their lives differently, right? They shouldn't cheat. They shouldn't um, try to hurt each other. They shouldn't shoot each other. Well, I mean, paintball, but like, right, they should, they should, there's things that Christians do because of Christian morality. So it'll probably look a little different, but at the end of the day, a group of Christians getting together to play paintball is not a distinctly Christian thing. Um, That kind of gets to some of the ideas of like Christian music versus secular music. 
Well, okay. Exactly. So yeah. do Christians have a particular way of playing chords on a guitar? Well, no, no, they don't. I play a G <laughs> the same way that an atheist plays a G. There's no difference in no. the way my fingers are shaped when I'm playing a G on a guitar than an atheist. Um, I play a Christian G. You play, play a Christian, Christian G? G chord. Is that yeah, the cheater one where Christian you use G. your middle finger and your pinky or do you play like uh, the real G? I use all the fingers because that's what God gave me. All the fingers. <laughs> that must be an interesting G. <laughs> it sounds heavenly for obvious reasons. But right. Sorry, go ahead. But Sunday morning when we gather as Christians is distinctly Christian. Now, you may say like, well, there are other organizations that gather to do worship, right? Um, Muslims gather together to do worship. I don't, I don't know True. much about uh, what a, a Muslim gathering looks like, but they gather to do worship. But it's very different in terms of the flow of things, the purpose of things, um, you know, and then you have like Mormons who will gather together or Jehovah's Witnesses will gather together to do worship. And it looks very close to Christian because it's a perversion of Christian belief. So when we gather as as Christians on the Lord's Day, we should be really aware of the fact that that is one of the few times during the week that we we live and do a distinctly Christian thing. And that's really important to remember. Yeah, that's brilliant. It's funny you bring that up actually in those terms because we have an, an somewhat elderly neighbor and we've been sharing the gospel, my wife and I, with him for some time. And so he, he knows our position and that we're Christians. And it's just so funny that whenever people come over here, he presumes like a distinctly Christian act is happening. So not long ago, or maybe it was a couple of years ago, actually, I'd seen him in the morning and we're making some small talk. And he said, oh, I saw that you had some company over the other night. Like I saw you had a, there were a couple cars parked over here. I just figured you guys are probably having a Bible study. And I was like, uh, some guys came over to play Xbox. I just think he just thinks that like whenever we're gathered together with more than one person, what's happening is a Bible study. And and it's funny because that kind of proves your point. Like in some ways there is a conception that everything that we're doing is holy, which is good. There's a separate and distinctness about our lifestyle and our morality. But for Christians, we ought to even be doubly careful to make sure that the Lord's day is guarded in worship in particularly as a very special time. So it should serve a special purpose. It should meet the essential elements. And when we deviate from that, it's at our own peril. Yeah. And I think something else that, that um, bears saying is, you know, the word holy means, um, means separated or set apart. Um, I'm reading this book by Sinclair Ferguson called devoted to God. And, um, it's a really, it's a really clever title because he's talking about being devoted to God, like our own devotion to God. But then he's talking about how as saints, we are devoted to God the same way that, um, the instruments in the the temple were devoted to God. They're set apart for a unique purpose. So it's a double entendre. And, um, in some ways we have to think about that. And I actually think part of being properly prepared for Lord's day worship is remembering that the other days of the week are not set aside or set apart, um, for God's use in the way that the Lord's day is. Um, Mm -hmm. that's actually a conversation I'm, I'm pulling that because they, they just talked about that on the podcast where, um, you know, we weren't going to get into Sabbath, but we are now. So, um, Let's talking, talking about Sabbath, um, you know, Tanner made the point on the show that Saturday is not a break day for him. And that's because God didn't tell us to separate out. You know, he didn't say work five days and rest for two. He said, work for six days and rest for one. And so the idea is that we we can't set aside our own day for holy use. We can't set aside our own day for God's special purposes. So that's not to say that God doesn't have intentions for the other days or that he doesn't want to be sovereign in those days, but he set those aside for ordinary common use. And he set aside Sundays for special um, for a special holy use, a holy purpose. And so living your life in the rest of your life, not in like a sinful worldly way, but recognizing that God has called us for six days for most of us, six days to come in worldly employment, worldly matters of normal importance, ordinary importance, um, and then setting aside that seventh day. That's part of preparation is understanding that dynamic. If you are in a church that has, um, for example, you know what we've talked about my background in mega church. Um, we had, uh, we had like 12 different services spread out across Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So having that Saturday evening service, it set apart a day other than what God had set apart for his use. And so in my mind, Sunday wasn't a special day. 
It, there wasn't anything special about Sunday versus the other days of the week. And I didn't understand it at the time, but I can look back at it and recognize that part of when I sort of stopped going to church after college, there was a time where I just didn't go to church. Part of that was not recognizing um, that day as separate and set apart for the Lord. Right. That's well said. I like that. So given that it, it sounds like we clearly have strong convictions that the Lord's day is not just important, but it's paramount and that there are specific elements and attitudes which we should have toward it. I want to kind of pivot toward again, how we can prepare for that. Cause I've really been wrestling through what, which, what is the proper way. And even in saying that, I think we all have this sense through conviction or conscience or whatnot that there is, if it's important, something that we should be doing before we get to that day that makes us ready to participate in it. So I have like, at least in my mind, kind of two, I would say common mistakes that people make in preparation. And I want to throw them out there and kind of get your perspective on them. So, I mean, this is to say that obviously like some events require no preparation and they're not impacted by lack of preparation. So like if you and your wife go out to dinner and then you decide like to go see a movie like right afterwards, for the most part, I mean, you can go see the movie and because even though you weren't prepared to go see it, it's, it's probably going to be okay for the most part. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and sometimes I get worried even my own life that I don't even think to prepare for corporate worship on the Lord's day because it has become just another routine that I've developed. And so I think that there's, there's no need to do it. Um, but I've also in contrast grown increasingly convicted that what I receive on the Lord's day, if you'll stick with me on this or how much benefit we derive from our time is commensurate with with the preparation that we put in. I know that sounds a little bit weird, but hear me out. So here are the two mistakes I think uh, people make and I want to take each one and then kind of get your feedback. The first I would say is that if you prepare for your Sunday morning or Sunday day worship as a spectator, it's going to cause problems. And in my mind, there's a big difference between preparing and anticipating. So you can anticipate something without preparing for it whatsoever. So if you were going to like a great sporting event, you could be excited in the coming days that's going to happen without having to actually do anything to make yourself ready for it. And you may not have to do anything, but preparing as like a spectator in my mind leads us to say things like when we go into church, like entertain me, move me, show me something amazing. Like show me again that this, this God is great and that there's something here that should really command some kind of emotional response. So hopefully God will show up by his spirit and I can have some kind of emotional spiritual experience that will carry me through the week. Um, I mean, what do you think about the spectator thing? Yeah, I think that's really good. And I mean, even even if we kind of look at the sports analogy, there are people who go to the game as kind of casual observers. And then there are people who go to the game that participate as members of the fans, right? The people who go and actually like they engage the game from the stands. And um, I think that there is some fruitful um, parallels to be had in that is that, you know, if I if I were to go to a baseball game, I, I'm not I'm not conversant with who the players are. I have a familiarity with the rules, but I don't know all the ins and outs of you know what the strategy is. So I'm just kind of watching. I'm, I'm watching the game. Maybe it's entertaining. Maybe it's not. I mean, it's baseball, so it's probably not entertaining because it's baseball. Really? We're going to go there? This is what we're <laughs> going to disagree about on this podcast? Hey, you know, maybe it is. But, but I mean, it's okay. We'll say soccer because that's my sport. But if, like soccer is a good, uh, probably an even better example is if you don't understand how the game of soccer works and you're not engaged to understand the different kinds of plays that can be set up, then it looks like a bunch of people kicking a ball back and forth for 90 minutes and it doesn't make any sense. But if you go in there and you understand how soccer works and you um, understand the way that plays are set up and you're engaged in that and you're participating um, by maybe by studying the game a little bit beforehand and by talking with the people, talking is not a great example, but like engaging with the people around you, cheering for your team when they do well, feeling frustrated when they don't do well. um, That's a whole different experience. And I think church is a similar Sunday morning church is a similar kind of dynamic is I can go into that service. And I can go in totally unprepared and I can just kind of, you know, well, yeah, maybe this will do something. Maybe it won't. Or I can go in recognizing that the pastor has spent time preparing. And so I should also spend time preparing in prayer. Um, If I know what the sermon passage is going to be ahead of time, I should spend some time reading that passage ahead of time. So I understand the flow of the text. Um, I should understand that the pastor has a strategy of some sort when he's preaching, that he's moving the, the sermon in a direction and be trying to watch for and understand what that direction is. 
All of those kinds of things that you might do as a really engaged sports fan to really get the most out of the game, a lot of that also carries over as a person listening to a sermon to understand that as as much as the pastor is active in preaching, you have to be active in listening. It's not mm-hmm. enough just to have the sound waves hit your eardrums for you to be getting um, the word of God. You have to be engaging that and be actively, consciously seeking God in the text as it's being preached to you. Right. That's well said. And this is what we're focusing on. There is preparation that a spectator can do, but at the end, they're a pure consumer, more or less. Right. That they are saying, well, I, I hope this is really good, like you said, or I hope the music is the kind that I really like today. I could really right. use an up an uplifting message you know, after the week I've had. And that's kind of consumer attitude. And I fall victim to that sometimes. Just yeah. I want to come and be fed and hang out and feel really awesome and upbeat when I leave. And that's not the really, I think that is a mistake of, of preparation. And so the second one, and this one's dear to my heart because I have not only witnessed this hurdle, but I experience this now the older I get with the way that I participate in worship is preparing for worship as workers. So some of us are tempted to prepare for the Lord's Day like we prepare for work. And for some, it really is work. And that's why we do that. So, you know, I grew up in a, a pastor's family. And I'm happy to say that, though still to this day, the Lord's Day is probably the busiest day of the week for my family generally, and my father specifically, that I never sensed that his attitude towards the Lord's Day was one of being primarily of work. Like I've spoken to lots of other pastors' kids who have felt at some point in their lives that they perceive God more as their father's boss than as their actual loving Heavenly Father. And that was largely due to how they perceived their parents dealt with the Lord's Day. And now, as an adult, where I have the great privilege of participating in playing musical worship and often in rotation leading musical worship, I can see that there is a hurdle that our mind, when we have something to do, specifically for the formal presentation of worship or participation in the service, that our mind gets filled with logistical details. And so it can become this place where preparing to meet with the church becomes an assessment of what we need to do rather than than an excitement for how God might meet us. And I know you also are are participating in musical worship in other ways, Tony. So have you come across this like in your life? Yeah, I mean, I don't do a lot of advanced preparation for um, the songs that we're doing. Um, It's not like I'm spending hours of time, you know, um, practicing or anything like that. But there is a level of um, of mental preparation that goes into a Sunday morning. So, you know, if we want to talk about some practical things, something that is as um, almost innocuous as going to bed early, making sure that you are going to um, give your body the amount of rest that you need in order not to be distracted or eight hours people. Right. So, you know, you wouldn't, if you had a huge presentation on Monday morning, or if you're a student and you have a huge test on Monday morning, um, if you're being wise, you're not going to stay up all night on Sunday night. And I don't, I never understood why we would give the Lord less um, than we would give our boss or our professor on, on yeah, Monday morning. Amen. And so when you, you know, when you are getting ready for me, it's, you know, even something as simple as I'm careful with my hands when I am um, doing things on Saturday, um, I'm careful not to injure my hands or to overuse them because I know my, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fair guitar player. I'm not great, but I, I have, uh, one of the things I struggle with, with guitar is my left hand is weak. Um, because I, the way that I type during the week, my hands get sore. And so I'm careful on, um, on Saturdays, particularly to be cautious with what I'm doing with my hands. And when I take the garbage to the dump, I make sure to take my wedding ring off, not just because I don't want to lose my wedding ring, but because you increase injury risks to your hands when you have a ring on. And if I were to injure my hand, then that would be X numbers of weeks or permanently, depending on how, you know, how bad the injury is that my church no longer has access to a guitar player. So something as simple as getting enough sleep or being careful with your body the day before, um, you know, I think can really go a long way into that preparation. Um, but at the same time, we're not preparing, um, the same way or for the same kind of thing as we would when we go to work on Monday, right? It's not, um, it's something that's a joy to prepare for. We shouldn't be grudgingly going, Oh man, I really wish that I could stay up on on Saturday night and watch that twilight zone marathon, but I got to go to bed so I can get up and go worship the Lord in the morning. It sounds right? like a really specific example. You just gave. <laughs> 
but like that's that's it like you might do that if you have to go to work right you may go oh, yeah, man i really wish that i could i really wish that i could stay up a little bit later on sunday night but i got to get up in the morning and drive to work but right. when we when we look at sunday it's a joy to come before the lord it's a privilege to come before the lord and so taking that time setting aside that time to prepare yourself whether it's physically or mentally um, or whether, you know, I get up, I get up extra early on Sunday morning because that gives me time to do my own devotions, to do a little bit of sort of free time stuff, um, to read a little bit, to play with the dog, to kind of get myself, um, to build that buffer between the normal week, uh, and the tasks of the week and Sunday morning. Um, right and, and I think everybody has to kind of discover what works best for them to build that buffer. But I think that's another thing is building, building space as a preparation. Um, you know, if you are constantly running, 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 and you've got a thousand tasks to do, and then all of a sudden you're expecting yourself to just shut off and be able to focus for 45 minutes of a sermon and not think about those other things. Like you really are, are setting yourself up for failure. You are. That's yep. exactly right. And I've had this strong conviction that, I'm, again, I'm really curious for your perspective on because I think that we cannot, this teaches us that we cannot use the idea that you are working for the Lord in a very formal sense, let's say by participating somehow in the worship service, as an excuse for not being prepared to receive in that worship service as you would as if you were not working. So what I mean is, you know, when I know that I, I need to leave and lead in the music or even play in the music, my conviction is that requires an extra measure of preparation. It's one of the burdens that God has given to those who are participating because, and it should be received as a joy because we're recognizing that there's always going to be butterflies in the stomach and there's always going to be things logistically that you need to prepare for, whether it's sermon order or arrangement of music or how you play a certain piece of music. But for me, what that means is the conviction that it needs to be on point before Sunday. It needs to be properly prepared for so that you can you can exceed, move over that hurdle and get to the place where you can worship unreservedly on Sunday, even though you know you have things to do to participate. And that just means putting in extra work, which is not just praying, which I hope that we're always doing, but also practice and running over something in your mind and being prepared to move from transition and points of the service so that when it comes to that time, it's not as if we're saying you need to do all of this under your power, but, and we're not, and I'm not definitely not saying that God, you know, rewards those who help themselves, but merely that we're taking that work seriously and freeing our minds up so that we can be impacted by the spirit in the moment when we're gathering with the church together. So I think that unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, there's a double burden on those who are participating in the actual worship service to make sure that everything is right on, that we're, we're pickled in prayer and that we've meditated and that we've practiced hard so that when the service comes, most of that comes naturally so that we can participate with our brothers and sisters. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I would add too that I think we have to be aware of how our salvation the, uh, theology sometimes comes out in these kinds of conversations. Oh, right? I like where so this is going. If, if we're, um, if we, imagine that we are somehow garnering God's affection or garnering God's, um, approval by the way we, um, we participate in worship or by the way we prepare, it's probably going right. to be more like what you're describing. We shouldn't be doing right. Yes. We're working for the Lord, but it's not a, um, we're not working to earn the prize. Right. So I go to I go to work and I love my job. I love what we do at the Transplant Center. And I think we're doing really important work and we're helping a lot of people. But at the end of the day, I probably wouldn't do it as a volunteer because I've got bills to pay and I'm there to get a paycheck. Um, I'm glad I, I, I'm super blessed that I get to do a job that is valuable and rewarding and means something while I get a paycheck. But I'm not doing it for free. I'm doing it because I need to pay the bills. Um, mm -hmm. If we're doing if we're preparing for worship or if we're engaging in worship from that mindset, well, this is what I have to do to get the blessings of God. This is what I have to do to grow in holiness and to grow in sanctification. Right. Um, we're going to come into that with the wrong perspective. And that subtly um, betrays in us a, a remnant of an understanding of works righteousness. That if I prepare well and I come to church well, then God will bless me. Well, that may be true uh, 
in a, in a sense that it is true that if you prepare well and you come to worship and you participate, that God will bless you, but not because you're preparing well. He uses right. those means to do that. If on the other side of it, though, if we flip it around and we represent it as a uh, kind of a good Orthodox reformed way to think about it, I'm already blessed. All the spiritual blessings um, that I could ever have, I already have in Christ. I don't need to gain God's favor any more than I have it because Christ already Christ already obtained all of that favor for me. And I am just as loved by the Father as he loves the Son because when he looks at me, he sees Christ. Um, if I come into worship with that perspective, it's no longer about working as a um, an employee for an employer. It's now about me wanting to please my Father, me wanting to spend time with my Father me wanting to um, adore and worship and enjoy union and fellowship with my father and with his son and with the spirit. It's no longer um, a treadmill that we have to keep walking on. It's now, you know, now instead of preparing because I want to be as efficient as possible in worship so I can get as much out of it as I can, it's now more about I don't want to be distracted from this sweet fellowship with the Lord. The same way that you, you know, when you're getting ready for a date night with your wife, um, you're getting all the things ready. You're getting all of the dishes cleaned up. You're getting all the other stuff around the house cleaned up. So when you finally have your date night, you don't have to worry about all of the dirty dishes waiting for you at home. Exactly. You don't have to worry about all of the other stuff that has to get done. You can spend that time focusing on enjoying that time with your spouse or when exactly. you're going to see a friend that's been out of town or who, who moved away and is coming for a visit. You get all that other stuff taken care of so you don't have distractions. And I think that's much more the way that we need to look at preparing for worship is I'm already going to be blessed by by God because I, I already am blessed by God. But I can understand and I can participate and I can enjoy the benefits of that blessing to greater degrees if I'm not distracted by all the other stuff that should have been taken care of the other six days of the week. I'm so glad you said it like that. I love that example because... I wanted to kind of shift as we kind of wrap up to some degree with some practical things. And some of which I think usually when this conversation comes up, they mention some of the things we've already talked about already, like get a good night's sleep, be as undistracted as possible in the morning. And those things are super helpful. However, sometimes I think they lack content because there is no good intent behind them. So we just think, well, that's what I ought to do. I think the biggest thing that we can do, practically speaking, to help us come prepared for Lord's Day worship is to ask, what is the proper paradigm? Which is what you're setting up. You're saying, why do we do these things? And it betrays like a misunderstanding of our theology when we see that we're, you know, preparing in an inappropriate way. So actually, for me, what I'm learning is the first thing that I can do is develop a proper frame of mind. And that's, I think, as much, you know, beginning by carefully and reflectively examining what God requires of, of us as individuals under the terms of new covenant worship. And that begins by asking not whether or not we enjoy quote unquote worship, but by asking what is it that God expects of us? Right. Because the goal in the time of worship on Sunday morning is not that we would lose ourselves, but that we would find God. So we cannot, and I I struggle with this a lot in, in time trying to frame a worship experience, so to speak. And that is we cannot like manufacture excellent corporate worship until we stop trying to find or manufacture excellent corporate worship right. and instead pursue God himself. And sometimes I worry that we're beginning to worship worship rather than worship God. So the first thing I would say is kind of what you've already just said really, really well is develop a proper frame of mind, a theological frame for what you are doing and why you are doing it on Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good starting point. I think, I think that's the only reasonable starting point. And I think once you've got that frame of mind and you've got that um, proper, not just like a mindset, it's not just about getting your head in the right spot, but it's about actually developing and understanding the theology of corporate worship. That is important. Um, because if you don't understand the theology of corporate worship, then you can't possibly think rightly about it. If you don't know what it is, then there's no way for you to properly prepare for it. Um, and then once you know what it is and you know, um, you know, you've got that in your mind, then you can, you can, you know, as Roman says, you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind as you start to understand the reasoning why we should prepare and how it is, what it is we're preparing for. Exactly. And so I would add to that then the next thing that we can do is 
actually set ourselves up to prepare to receive, to recognize that there is something special. It, the, the worship experience corporate, corporately on the Lord's Day is a means of grace. And so we need to be preparing by asking God to help us receive his revelation with gratefulness yeah. and humility. And, and I have an idea about this. It's, I don't, it's definitely not my own, but something I want to run past you and kind of take a term and kind of flip it somewhat on its head. So we hear a lot about like expository preaching. So like, how would you, what would be like your definition real quick, Tony, of like what expository preaching is? Yeah. I mean, expository preaching is basically um, letting the text of the Bible uh, be its own message. So you take a text, you explain what the text means um, in its original context, and then you take that meaning of the original text in its context and you apply it to the congregation in front of you. Man, that was beautiful. So I want to, <laughs> with that definition, I want to draw on something that you said earlier and suggest that we should be preparing our minds throughout the week and especially on Saturday as the day approaches to have expository listening that we're kind of listening in the same way that we're not trying to focus on hobby horses, but that we're actually trying to let the scripture in the text read us. And this strikes me in my own life because I think of TV watching and preaching and they're just like diametrically opposed to one another. So yeah. one is visual the other is rational. One involves the eyes. The other involves the ears. One creates passive watchers. The other creates actively hearers. And I think to some extent, our culture has trained us to just be the kind of consumers that just sit and veg out and receive, receive stuff without doing so in a way that promotes like expository listening. So I'm trying to work on that more in my own life. I don't know if you have any thoughts on like how we can be better listeners. Like how could the, how could a person who knows the sermon is coming up be a better listener to that sermon? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little bit different for everybody, but for me, I, um, I take notes and it's not so much, um, for like the purpose of going back and rereading them, but taking notes for me forces me to pay attention to what's going on because I'm having to, I'm not just copying what's being said. I'm actually processing what's being said and jotting down notes. But for me, I get distracted very easily. So, um, you know, I might have a thought that comes into my mind about a text and if I don't, if I don't write that down, um, I, my mind kind of circles on it. So I think finding right. a way, um, finding a way to engage the sermon that keeps you focused on the sermon and isn't a distraction, but also gives you a way to sort of push distractions aside. Um, for some people, you know, that's taking notes like I, I am. For other people, it's not taking notes. Some people taking notes can be a distraction, but finding a way during the sermon to um, keep your attention focused and to be able to make sure that you're not getting distracted on other things, I think is really important. I like that. Yeah, I like. I'm also a note taker. I'm trying to find stuff we disagree on, but evidently that's just going to be baseball today. <laughs> yeah, baseball. So, so we we prepare to receive. I think we also need to prepare to prepare to respond. And this, I don't think, is like a, a surprise to anybody. You know, when God reveals Himself to us, things happen. That's just right. the style. And, but where I think the difference is is sometimes we sense that what's happening in the service is happening to us. So if, uh, you know, some churches are celebrating the Lord's table every Sunday, others are doing that once a month or with some other kind of frequency. And we feel like, oh, it's this Sunday and it's happening to me. Instead of taking a more active role in seeking out preparation to say like, I'm going to volitionally respond to this, not just hang out and know that it's happening to me, but even in preparation, I know it's coming and I want to be fully engaged, fully ready, understanding the significance of that part of the service. And then I want to make sure that my will is in line there, that I'm actually somehow playing a part if it's only being more mentally in tune with what's happening. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And I think um, I'm trying to find the reference, but I think it's the second Helvetic confession. I don't know where, but it talks about how the word of God preached is the word of God. And that's yes. not to say that the sermon itself is somehow inspired or anything like that. But what it is to say is that when you're sitting under the preaching of the word, and this is why it's important, you know, earlier I brought up that a, a church should be constituted under duly ordained elders. And that's kind of a technical way to talk about it. But if you have illegitimate elders, um, whether that's illegitimate because they've kind of taken the office unto themselves or because they're, uh, they're not properly qualified or because they're not 
Uh, they're not, you know, if you have a woman pastor, I think that that's not a duly ordained um, situation. But when the word of God preached is preached by a duly ordained elder, it's not the same as just a speech. So recognizing that as you're sitting there, you're receiving the word of God. Um, even, you know, like we said, getting your head around what that is will automatically change your orientation towards it. Right. If um. I if I think I'm sitting to and listening to a motivational speech. That maybe, and this is how a lot of pastors preach, right? They've got their message that they want to preach, and then they kind of sprinkle Bible toppings on top of it as, or Bible scripture on top of it to try to give it the flavor of a sermon. Um, you know, that's that's like if you put sugar on spinach, right? It may make it sweet, but it doesn't change <laughs> that awful. it's spinach, right? You're right. still eating spinach. Um, that might not be a bad thing to do because then you're eating spinach, but um, so maybe that's not a great analogy, but. You're recognizing that this is not just a speech because um, if your pastor is doing his job and is properly theologically trained, he knows that it's not just a speech. Um, right. I preach occasionally and this is this is not to, to toot my own horn about anything. I don't get nervous when I'm doing public speaking. Um, it's just I've never been the kind of person that gets nervous to get up in front of a group and give a lecture. Um, but when I preach on a Sunday morning, that's a whole different game. And yeah. I, I'm beyond nervous on Sunday mornings. Yeah. It, there's a gravity to it that Amen. I've heard from a lot of veteran pastors that never really goes away. You get more comfortable with the rhythm of your sermon and the delivery, but that gravity should never go away for them. And it should never go away for us. Every Amen. morning when I sit down to receive the word of God, I'm receiving the word of God. And that should be a big deal. Man, you just preached a sermon right there, Tony. <laughs> I don't think that I did, awesome. but... But it's true, though. And, it, it, you know, when I got my head it around that, it really changed how I approached the sermon. Carl Truman um, talks. I wish he would actually get around to writing this book because I think I've heard him say he wants to write this book a bunch of times. Um, he talks about how part of the reason that we have some of the problems in the church that we have um, is because we don't have a good theology of preaching. And that's not necessarily, you know, he's talking about it from kind of like, what do they do at Westminster Seminary to prepare ministers? And he's talking about they spend a lot of time developing a theology of preaching. But at the same time, this, the congregation has to have a theology of preaching, too. Yes, and exactly. understanding that theology of preaching can really be a game changer in terms of your um, your appropriation of the scriptures and of what what God is doing through your minister. Exactly. And that's why it blows my mind. We could spend this, we could spend this entire hour talking about super practical lists of things that you could do to make going to church easier. Like make sure your gas tank is filled and the kids outfits are laid out and you have meals prepared for the next day on Saturday and you've written out your checks for time. All those things are great. But unless we have a proper theology for what that, that time actually means, then all those things are pretty much for, for not. So imagine like a church that is like thoroughly convinced by conviction of the full counsel of God, what it means to sit under teaching where they're actually receiving the word of God in their ears. That congregation would just like leave running through the walls rather than the doors. Yeah. I mean, they just, they just be fully sold out and committed entirely receiving the means of grace in a really powerful way. So, I mean, the last thing that I want to, to say, and this is probably the one that's challenged me the most I don't know how you feel about this, would be this whole process of preparing to edify others. Yeah. So I really with, was okay and had was familiar with the, the first that we sp- talked about, preparing to receive, preparing to respond. Those made sense. But I've been really challenged recently uh, with the question, am I going to church expecting that God is going to use me in that time? Not just generally speaking, not in kind of an ephemeral, untouchable, ambiguous, enigmatic way, but is he using me there to edify? Which is a word, of course, that we really only use in speaking most modern contexts about religion. It's not like I go to a meeting and say like, man, that was so edifying <laughs> at work. But if, if we're understanding edifying to actually mean build, establish, then that kind of gives me a different sense of accountability. What am I doing in that time in the morning to help build and establish the church? Yeah. And the conviction for me has been that the corporate worship isn't just stopping when the singing ends or the, or the preacher says amen. It's going to continue as we greet, encourage, serve, pray for, exhort, care for one another. And am I asking the Lord in preparation throughout the week to say, bring me in contact with somebody in the body on Sunday morning that needs a word of encouragement or a word of accountability or just somebody to listen to their problems? Yeah. Am I really asking for to be a part of the, the hurting and those who are suffering? Somebody who who desperately needs 
the arm or the leg or the nose or the elbow, whatever I am in the body of Christ? Am I prepared and asking God how he might use me to edify the church, such as there's a particular part that I have to play, even if I'm not on the stage on Sunday morning or I'm not an usher or anything else. But this edifying has really been a big challenge. And for me and maybe others, that's where I think we often fall short. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's something to it. Um, you know, if, if we take seriously what the scriptures have to say about the unity of Christ's body, then, um, we should be coming to church prepared to strengthen one another. Yes. Um, we should be coming prepared to weep with those who weep, but also to rejoice with those who rejoice. So we've mentioned in the past that our church does, um, does like a corporate time of prayer where people um, literally just shout out their prayer requests or share how prayers have been answered. And um, I know for me, um, it's been a challenge for me. I wouldn't say a struggle, but it's been a challenge for me because that's not the background I come from. So um, a lot of times I'll have something in the back of my mind that's a prayer request or a praise report or something along those lines. And I have to consciously remember to bring those forward. But that edifies the body because then people can pray for me and I can pray for them. They can rejoice with me like they're commanded to, and they can weep with me like they're commanded to. Yes. If I'm right. not open to doing those things, if I'm not open to being uh, vulnerable to people who are closer than blood relatives, then, um, you know, then I'm not, I'm not really taking seriously those, um, those exhortations to strengthen one another and to bear with one another. So I, I don't really know how much more I can say about it, but I think you're absolutely right that that is, that is an area that, especially kind of in the consumer driven, um, the way that our culture thinks about everything is you hardly ever think about, well, what can I give to someone else? You know, right. you don't, you don't really think all that much about like, when you go to work, like, well, what can I do to make this person's job easier? Um, that's just not the way that our society functions. So it, it really is a paradigm shift for us to think that way when we come to a Sunday morning. But I, th- I think you're absolutely right that that needs to be a part of your preparation too, is to think about how am I going to do that and why am I going to do that? And we're not just talking about be ready if there's an opportunity for you to serve in some capacity where it is to bring a meal to somebody who's just had a child or to serve in nursery. I think we're talking about actually impacting someone's life during the service. Like in that time where you're actually gathering together, you don't need a formal excuse to be an encouragement. And in my church, we have this, you know, formal time of greeting. There's always a time of greeting. And I became very convicted that there's a wonderful ministry in small talk. Somebody maybe who's visiting for the first time or somebody else just needs to have somebody say a friendly good morning or how are things going and mean it in a sincere way. And there's something powerful about that. This is one of those places where there, I'm so excited after our conversation for the next Lord's Day, honestly, like all joking aside, as if I would be joking throughout (laughs) the course of this podcast. That's true. Um, Because I'm really excited because I think in my own experience, there is so much more of God's means of grace in the Sunday morning worship that he wants to give to me. And this is one of those areas where there's this mysterious coalescence, beautiful coalescence of God's sovereignty and our human responsibility, and that I have just not yet prepared well enough, and that there's more that he wants to bless me with and bless the family of God with by interacting in this ways. And so I'm actually pretty excited about that. Like I, I want to give myself over to being more mindful throughout the week and I wish there was like something we could do, Tony, to, to like tell ourselves or people like, here's just like 10 things. And if you check them off, you're going to have like a fantastic Sunday morning where all your kids will be dressed when you wake up and, you know, like you, you won't spill your coffee on the way and you'll have a parking spot like right next to the door of church. But those things don't exist. I think this is more a changing of our mind, getting our minds theologically prepared in the right frame to engage in worship on the Lord's day. At least that's what I'm learning. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, Romans 12, one and two is, has been, um, it's been one of those verses that I'm trying to memorize and be more faithful with Bible memorization as a whole. But when we read, um, 12, two, you know, it doesn't say be transformed by the completion of your checklist that you may, you know, you may know the will of God. It says be transformed by the renewing of your mind, um, that by constant or that by discernment, you may tell, 
what is the will of God, what's good and perfect and acceptable. So it, it you're, you're absolutely right. Like we could, we could give a long list of do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Um, and, and at the end of the day, you know, if I had 10 things on a list, maybe half of them would be universal enough that everybody would, would have some benefit from it. But if you really get your head around this and you really understand and you really focus on it, that checklist will find its way into existence for you. Right. And it'll it'll come into existence in the right way. Instead of sitting down trying to think of all of the things you need to do to accomplish the goal, you sit down and you think about the goal first. And you, you put in front of you the prize that you're running for, and you're much more likely to run after that prize if you if you know why you're running for it. That's well said. Because even a really good orchestrated list of surface level things will fail you. Yeah. But it means if if we focus on putting first things first, of you, as you said, that means, though I have no experience with this, but I personally have many friends who have wonderful families full of armies of small children, <laughs> that you could have a Sunday, if you process this properly and wrapped your mind around it theologically and been committed and convicted by it, that you could have a Sunday where everything goes wrong on the practical checklist and yet you still walk into God's courts and you haven't trampled in there Yeah, that you're ready and you're prepared, even though on the surface, all the logistical pieces fell apart, that your heart is still ready to be prepared for worship. And that's where I want to be. Yep. Absolutely. Well, I think that probably should just about do it this week. Um, just a reminder, uh, we would love it if you would give us a call, uh, phone number 607-444-BROS, uh, Bros. which is 607-444-2767. Uh, we'd love Bros. to get your voicemails. We'd love to hear about your thoughts on what we said. Um, Mom, if you want to leave us some encouraging voicemails, we would not object to that. Um, We love you, Mom. And then also, if you could uh, take a minute out of your day and go over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, uh, leave us a little message about what you liked about the show. Um, That really does help other people find the show and helps us to know that we're on the right track. So until next week, prepare for the Lord's Day and get stoked for what God's going to do in that service with the body of Christ. Right, Tony? Absolutely. We will see you next week. Peace. Oh, 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 oh,